So, I don't know about you guys, but for the longest time, you know, I actually didn't understand the Easter tradition. You know, I couldn't make the connection. For a lot of people, uh, the Easter celebration revolves around Easter baskets. You know, I always used to get those Easter baskets filled with that fake green grass. You know, I, I always liked it. You know, Easter baskets filled with chocolate bunnies and jelly beans and peeps. Anybody still eat peeps? Yeah. Yeah. So I was watching a program on TV just recently, and the guy said the stale peeps are better than the fresh peeps. It's true, huh? Okay. So peeps, you know, and uh, uh, traditions often, uh, the Cadbury cream eggs. Oh, I don't like them. I think they're a little nasty. I mean, it's like industrial strength sugar, and I'm, and I'm a sugar fan too. You know, it's, but I do like the Cadbury, the little Cadbury um, pastel colored chocolate eggs. You know, I do like those very much. And then there's Easter egg hunts. And followed all by a family dinner, which includes usually for most people some type of ham. You know, a spiral cut honey baked ham or something equivalent. If you're from my age group, it was a can that you took a key to. And, you know, what are we having, Mom? Ham. Oh, it looks so good. You know, gelatin just falling off of it, you know. Deviled egg is usually part of an Easter uh, dinner because, you know, you got to do something to get rid of all those eggs. Right, deviled eggs after the Easter egg hunt, and uh, you know, egg salad sandwich maybe the next day. Uh, at least that's the way it was in in my house and our house growing up. Easter is usually a day of great weather. Usually, days sunny days, puffy white clouds, blue skies. However, since I'm constantly uh, being re, uh, reminded that I've only lived here a year. It could snow any day of the year here. And uh, literally, probably I heard at least 10 times uh, in the recent weeks, you remember when it snowed on Easter? And everybody's, oh, yeah, I see some heads shaking even now. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's been my experience, though, growing up in Southern California, Easter is always accompanied with nice weather. You know, and that's the way it was for us when we lived in Europe, too. And today... Another beautiful day. So for you doubters that Easter doesn't come with a nice weather, you know. But um, for the longest time, I didn't understand what all this had to do with this Bible story of this guy named Jesus raising from the dead. Now, don't get me wrong. You know what? Uh, I didn't lose any sleep over it. You know, I look forward to Easter, all that candy. I mean, uh, you don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth, they say. I don't know what that means, but uh, that's what they say. But I know you don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to risk putting in uh, a stop to a good thing by asking too many questions. So, you know, you just keep things to yourself. But I never really understood it. And I never understood why it was a reason to celebrate. But as I got older... After I gave my heart to the Lord and I placed my faith in Jesus, I began to wonder, how did we get to the place of Easter baskets, chocolate bunnies, and colored eggs? Well, I'm told 
the tradition started hundreds of years ago, right? Um, there was a, a poor widow woman who lived in Germany, and her husband had passed away earlier that year, and she had a number of kids, and you know how moms are. I mean, they want to do something special for their kids on the holidays. So when Easter came, she colored an egg, and that actually was a tradition in Germany at the time. Uh, and in her desire to cheer her kids up, what she thought she would do is she would hide that egg and, uh, and then send the kids out to hunt to look for that egg. And uh, what she did was she hid that egg in a rabbit cage. And so when the kids were out uh, searching throughout the whole house, they couldn't find it. They went outside. And then one of the, the kids, you know, went to the rabbit cage, opened it up. And when they opened the rabbit cage up and looked in, it kind of startled the rabbit and the rabbit jumped out. And um, right where it had been sitting, right where it had been nesting and laying, there was the egg. And so uh, the kids, they just naturally assumed the rabbit laid the egg. And a rumor began to spread in that region. And uh, so I'm told that's how rabbits and eggs became um, you know, connected with the Easter tradition. Now, I don't know if that's true. It's just something that I heard. But after living 10 years in Germany, I wouldn't be surprised if that was true. Because Germany actually is a, is a place where many of our holiday traditions originated from. I mean, I tell you what, living in Germany for 10 years, I think Christmas was invented in Germany. Germans do Christ, Christmas right. I mean, uh, in the town that was near ours, Rotenburg, uh, famous walled city. People from all over the world would come over, but I don't eat beef or pork, um, not because of any other reasons other than I don't eat it. But at Christmas time, they would have a half meter bratwurst on a baguette at Rotenburg. And we would go down there and we would eat a couple of them every year. It was amazing. But, you know, I digress, right? There's another thing about Easter in Europe, though, that is really special. It's a tradition I wish would catch on here in the States, and it's Easter Monday. It's an extra day off, paid extra day off from work. You know, it's another day to enjoy your family. Well, you know, we're not here to talk about traditions and, and uh, bunnies and chocolates, jelly beans and peeps, you know, good weather, holidays. We're here to talk about the risen Savior. So if you will, uh, take your Bibles and go ahead and open up to Leviticus chapter 14, okay? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll get a Bible in your hand. Um, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, known as the third book of Moses and most of the world, you know? And I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, Gary, the Easter story is not found in the Old Testament, you know? It's not in Leviticus. Uh, I hear you. But I would just ask you, please be patient with me. And, and let's look at Leviticus 14 and just see what the Lord has for us here. Okay? So in Leviticus 14, we have what's called the law of the leper. All right? You might already know that in the ancient world, leprosy was a terribly horrific disease. Right? It was then and it is today an incurable disease. So Leviticus chapter 14, verse 1 says, 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this shall be the law of the leper for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest and the priest shall go out of the camp and the priest shall examine him. And indeed, if the leprosy is healed in the leper, then the priest shall command to take for him who is to be cleansed two living and clean birds along with cedar wood, scarlet and hyssop. And the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed in an earthen vessel over running water. As for the living bird, he shall take it, the cedar wood and the scarlet and the hyssop, and dip them and the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over running water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed from the leprosy and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird loose in the open field. He who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes, shave off all his hair and wash himself in water that he may be clean. After that, he shall come into the camp and shall stay outside his tent seven days. But on the seventh day, he shall shave all the hair off of his head and his beard and his eyebrows. All his hair he shall shave off. He shall wash his clothes and wash his body in water and he shall be clean. So in this law of the leper, we have an illustration. We have a type of Easter. And it's a picture of the very day that we're celebrating this morning. In the Bible, leprosy is always a type. It's always an illustration. It's always a picture of sin. In fact, um, it's the perfect picture of sin, right? How is it an illustration of sin? Well, this terrible disease called leprosy, you know, it starts out very insignificantly, right? The first sign of leprosy is just a little maybe raised spot on your skin. And it doesn't look much more than really like a freckle in the early stages on the skin. And uh, because of that, people are often tempted to ignore it, right? That's eh, nothing. It's no big deal. You know, it begins very insignificantly. And that's how sin starts in our life, right? It's nothing. It's no big deal. It's okay if I go here, if I try that, you know, it's okay for me to watch this movie, see that TV show. You know, it's nothing. It's no big deal. Leprosy, even though it starts small, it begins to spread. It begins to spread fairly quickly, but it also spreads insidiously. So it's a characteristic of leprosy as it spreads almost undetectedly, uh, undetectably, uh, because uh, it doesn't cause you any pain initially, right? It spreads and you don't feel it. There's no, you know, itch to it. There's no ouch that comes with it. So when a person sees this little raised spot on their skin, that little freckle, they think it's nothing. It's no big deal. But then it begins to spread. And as it spreads, again, you don't feel anything because it desensitizes you, right? Leprosy spreads. And as it works on the nerves, what happens is there's a loss of feeling that occurs. 
And that's why leprosy is a, a perfect picture of sin, because that's exactly what happens with sin in our lives. We might say, you know, I'm okay doing this, but I'd never do that. You know, I'm okay going here, but I'd never go there, right? It's not a big deal. It's nothing to worry about. It's just a little compromise. I mean, come on, don't judge me, okay? You know, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. It's okay. It's just a little raising up of my flesh. And as it begins to spread, as it begins to take over your life, you don't even feel it. Why? Why? The Bible says when we give into sin, and no sin stays small, it always spreads. When we say, it's okay for me to dabble in this area, you know, I, I, I'm just going to try it once, you know, just a little bit can't hurt, you know, I can control it, you know, it's only a little compromise, but I'll never go any further than that. But then you do, and when you do, when I do, something happens. We don't feel it, right? Wow. I didn't feel all that bad afterwards. You know, I certainly didn't feel as bad as I thought I would after doing that. Initially, we might feel maybe something the first or the second time. Maybe there's a little bit of, of guilt, but it's not long before we say, I don't really feel that bad about it. In fact, I don't feel bad at all. I mean, you know, it really wasn't worth me worrying about it. <coughs> Sin has the ability to take away our natural feeling, right? Sin takes away that natural check that you have in your heart to know what you're doing is right or whether it's wrong, right? Sin hardens you and it deadens you. It makes you cold and numb. After a, a while, we don't feel anything at all, right? We just go about what we're doing and uh, what we thought we would never do before, we just continue without any regrets or any remorse with no regard. Our consciousness becomes seared. And when that happens, our consciousness doesn't come into play with anything that we're doing. And we just prove at that point that what the Bible says about sin is true. When we say, you know, I'm okay doing this, but I'd never do that. But then... When we do that, we say, oh, it's not that bad. So we reach out and begin to dabble in, in other sins also. One thing leads to another. And all of a sudden, the thing that you thought you would never do, that's what we're doing. And then before you know it, we just start repeating that cycle. It gets worse, it gets worse, it gets worse. It's a downward spiral. And the problem is, when we compromise and dabble in a little sin, it just makes it that much easier to compromise again. And then we begin to experiment with even greater sin, right? Once I cross the line that I've drawn in the sand, saying that I would never cross it this far and no further, once I cross that line, it just becomes... You know, so very hard not to just keep drawing lines in the sand that I cross, right? Sin, just like leprosy, starts out small, spreads insidiously, 
you know, because you don't really feel it. It also spreads very quickly. You know, before you know it, it's widespread. And in the end, it brings about complete destruction. Sin totally destroys. So what happens with leprosy is it spreads and you don't even feel it. But then all of a sudden you start to notice your fingers and your nose begins to disappear. Your toes begin to disappear. You, your eyes start to crust over with this mucusy film that, um, you know, uh, you can't see. It makes it so you can't see. You become blind to the things that are all around you. Your facial features, your countenances, uh, it, it starts to change. And then you start to stink. You start to stink so badly. The smell is so awful. No one can stand to be around you. Your body is dying. And things get so bad. In Bible days, a, a leper was isolated, right? He'd be a total outcast. He'd be totally ostracized from his community. He would be kicked out. His family would have nothing to do with him. And isn't that what we see sin bring about in the life of a person? It causes us to be removed from normal life. It, it results in marriages and families breaking up, right? Friends become distant from one another. And uh, before you know it, you become blind to the truth. And people who fall into sin begin to smell. I mean, their life begins to give off such a foul odor, which is offensive to people around them. They don't want to be around you anymore. And after a while, you find yourself on the outside looking in. It's leprosy, right? The leper in the Bible was totally shunned. He was a complete outcast. It was a hopeless condition. It was a, a dire, uh, dreaded, disheartening condition. It was game over for the leper. The law of the leper in Leviticus 14, it was on the books for 1,500 years. From the time the law was given to the time of, of Jesus Christ, but no one had ever been cleansed in the nation of Israel. The law was never practiced because there was never a cleansing of leprosy. And Again, it was and still is today an incurable disease. So why was the law of the leper even written into the Bible? Because there is one who would come. One who would bring about the cleansing. One who would bring about healing. One who could and would help those in their hopeless condition. Right? Leviticus 14 speaks prophetically of the Messiah who would come. When Jesus, the Messiah, would come into the world, he would do the unthinkable. He would do the impossible. He would provide cleansing for the leper. He would touch them compassionately, and he would heal them, and he would set them free. Leviticus 14 was prophetic, and it's a depiction of how the Messiah would bring about cleansing. Verse 4 says, Then the priest shall command to take from him who is to be cleansed two living and clean birds. In verse 4, we see that two birds were to be taken. 
right? Two sparrows, because sparrows, they were the most common of all birds. The high priest would take these two birds for the one who was to be cleansed, and he would take them outside of the camp, outside of the community, outside to where the leper was. The sparrow, the sparrow's a creature of heaven, right? He was taken from the tree that he was lodged in. The one who flew across the heavens, now taken as a captive, just like Jesus, our great high priest, just like Jesus, who left his home in heaven. He left his home in glory. He came to this place to where sinners dwell, and he became a common man. He became a man just like you and I. How was he to be killed? Well, verse 4 tells us we want to notice he was to be killed with cedar wood, scarlet, and hyssop, right? The wood speaks prophetically of the cross. Many Bible scholars believe that the cross was probably made out of cedar wood, and it's very possible it may have been, right? So there's the cedar wood, the scarlet, the color of blood, and hyssop. And you remember when our Savior hung on the cross, what they did was they took some hyssop uh, and, and attached a sponge, a sponge to it and filled the sponge with sour wine. It was a mixture of vinegar and myrrh. And they offered it to Jesus in order to deaden the pain of crucifixion a bit. He tasted it and we're told he refused it. He refused it because... He would endure the entirety of the wrath of God. He would bear to the fullest extent the penalty which our sins deserve. He would absorb the wrath and the penalty completely and totally for us. Now, the picture of Leviticus 14 is perfect and complete, right? The wood that he was crucified on. Scarlet, the blood that he shed that day. Hyssop, present at the cross, associated with the death of Jesus. And then in verse 5, we read, And the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed in an earthen vessel. If you've been a believer for any length of time, if, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that the earthen vessel is a picture of our body right? Paul speaks about our bodies as an earthen vessel, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. And the body is an earthen vessel, the Bible says, made of dust, right? The dust of the earth. So we have this picture in Leviticus 14 of the sparrow of heaven, our Savior, with wood and hyssop and scarlet, symbols of death and crucifixion, put into an earthen vessel. He became like you and I through the incarnation. He dwelt amongst us. He took upon himself an earthen vessel. And the bird was to be killed in the earthen vessel. Verse 5 says, over running water. Running water in the Bible is always a picture and always a symbol of the Spirit. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
But this he spoke concerning the Spirit. If you put the pieces together, you have an innocent bird taken from heaven, put with cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet, put into an earthen vessel, an earthen pot, symbolic of the body, killed under running water. It's a, it's a, a perfect picture of what Jesus went through. He was taken from heaven. He was sent from heaven and put into the hands of men, then slaughtered. This innocent one, the heavenly sparrow killed, and he was killed under running water, a picture of the Spirit. It was according to prophecy given by the Spirit written 1,500 years earlier. It wasn't an accident. It all happened exactly as it was supposed to happen. Prophesied by the Spirit, the running water. Prophesied in the Word, the Word of God, the living water. Right? It all points to what Jesus did for you and me. You know, if you have kids, like I do, you love them. You love your kids. I mean, God has blessed me so much. God has blessed me with Tina. I have such a wonderful wife. You know, she's a, a terrific mom. And uh, God has given us just amazing kids, you know. Uh, honestly, I don't tell them enough how amazing they are. Ashley, our daughter, um, Brian and Austin, our two sons, couldn't be prouder of them. And our daughter, uh, she married a great guy. We love our son-in-law. He's just a great guy. And now Tina and I have two wonderful grandsons, Noah and Florian, Flo for short. Um, I got a thousand pictures on my phone after service. You want to meet my grandkids? Come on up. I'll keep you here till Tuesday. But uh, again, if you, I'm sure you feel the same way about your family, the way I feel about mine, right? I would give my life for them, for all of them, right? No questions asked. If one of my kids, if Tina or one of my grandsons, or if all of them, for that matter, came down with a terrible disease, you know, and they could be saved from it, but the cure would cost me my life, it would be a no-brainer. Hey, yeah, let's go. Let's do it. What are we waiting for, right? I would be more than happy to lay down my life for any one of my kids, for all of them, right? And I'm sure you would too, right? That's, that's what being a parent is all about. And that's what we read in, in Romans 5, 7. The New Living Translation says it this way. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good, you know? But that's not the picture of the story that we're looking at here, right? In our story, we have the blood of an innocent bird, which speaks of the Lamb of God, the sparrow of heaven. And his life was given for people that hated him, people that spat on him, people that mocked him, People that raised their fists to him and said, we want nothing to do with you, right? And while Jesus hung there on the tree, nailed to the cross, there with the cedar and the hyssop and the scarlet and the myrrh, 
Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. An innocent bird being killed in an earthen vessel with cedar, scarlet, and hyssop. It was a foreshadowing. It was a preview. It was a picture that points to what Jesus did for you. It's what Jesus did for me, right? And he did it that we might be, that we could be, that we truly would be forgiven of all our sins. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Sin works just like leprosy. It ostracizes. It stinks. It blinds. Its end is the end of life. But God so loved us that he sent his son to take our sin, to be slaughtered in our place, that we might be forgiven of all sin that we've ever done, that we are doing, that we might do yet in the future. If we'll just embrace the grace and receive the gift of what Christ did on Calvary's tree, we could be forgiven. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. Yeah, the leprosy is gone. We're cleansed because of what the sweet sparrow, our Savior Jesus, did for you and for me. 1 Corinthians 15.55 says, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Sin that should have sent you to hell. Sin that should have caused me to be ostracized as an unclean leper, to be isolated forever and ever, to be cast out of the camp into outer darkness, right? Sin, it's been washed away by the blood that Jesus shed that day. And now we can live forever. Oh, death, where is your sting? When God became a man, when he took the spikes that pierced his hands and his feet, when he took the pain, when he paid the price for you and for me, shedding his blood that we might be cleansed of the incurable disease of sin, sin and death had lost its grip on me. It lost its grip on you. Sin and death no longer has power over you and I, right? We've been cleansed. We've been set free. And verse 7, if you look down at it, it says, And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed from the leprosy. The blood was to be sprinkled. The blood from the sparrow with the hyssop and the scarlet and the wood and the earthen vessel that was there with the running water. It was to be sprinkled seven times on the leper. Seven is the number in the Bible of completion, perfection. Completion, perfection, perfectly forgiven. Completely forgiven because Jesus Christ on the cross bled from seven places. His head, 
where the crown of thorns pierced his brow, his two hands, where the spikes went through his wrist, his two feet, where another spike was driven through his soles, his back, where he was flogged with the flagellum, uh, whipped beyond description, leaving his back to look like hamburger meat, just shreds of hanging flesh, and his side, where into which the spear was thrust and what came out, water, or blood and water. Seven places he bled. Why seven? Why seven? To let you know what thoughts have been in your head. He's got it covered. Right? Blood from his head. You might say, but my thought life, it's terrible. And that may be true. But his blood cleanses you perfectly today. Right? Your hands. I shouldn't, have, uh, I shouldn't have touched that. I shouldn't have handled that. You know, but Jesus would say, I can handle it. Because my blood has been shed. No matter what you've touched, no matter what you've handled, it's been paid for by me. I've paid the price completely, he would say. But I've turned my back on you, Lord. So many times I've walked away from you, Jesus. I, I haven't done those things that you've asked me to do. Jesus would say, I got your back. I got your back. My blood has flowed from my back and your sin is washed away. I don't care what you've done, where you've been, or how long you've been gone. Your sin is forgiven today. I feel so defeated, Lord. My feet have walked places where I shouldn't have walked. Jesus would say, I can cleanse your souls. I was, it, I was pierced through my feet. Jesus would say, I have you covered from head to toe. Where you've walked, the places that you shouldn't go, I've covered with my blood. The things that you've touched that you shouldn't have handled, I've washed in the blood. The things that you've thought that you shouldn't think, I've cleansed with my blood. But Lord, you, you don't know what's inside of me. I'm, I'm so ashamed. My heart, it's so dark, disgusting. It's desperately wicked. As the spear was thrust into Jesus' side, out came blood and water. And Jesus would say, I can cover that as well. You know what? I'll give you a new heart. What, whatever is going on in the deepest part of your heart, I've got that covered inside and out, head to toe. I've paid the price. And in verse 7, we look again. And he said, sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed from the leprosy and shall pronounce him clean. Oh, the blood of Jesus. The blood. The blood. The blood of Jesus that cleanses me, that cleanses you from all our sin. You know, churches today, they don't like to talk about the blood. Spurgeon said, a bloodless gospel is a powerless gospel. Man, it's all about the blood that cleanses us from all of our sin. And you can be cleansed today, each and every one of you. It reminds me of, of the old hymn. I was teasing uh, Sandy. I was teasing Sandy uh, before we started. Is there a song she's not going to sing, uh, sing that, that I'm going to reference in uh, the study today? But this is one she didn't sing. It's, there's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. 
There's power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, okay, Gary, thanks for sharing, but what's all this have to do with Easter? You know, what's it have to do with the resurrection? Well, remember, two birds were taken in verse 4. And in verse 7, we read, And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him, who is to be cleansed from leprosy, and shall pronounce him clean, and shall let the living bird loose in the open field. The second bird is returned to heaven. And again, a picture of Jesus, right? You know, one bird wouldn't be enough to, to um, depict the work that Christ did. So two birds were needed. One was sacrificed, killed in the earthen vessel with the cedar and the scarlet and the hyssop. And then afterwards, the other was released to return to heaven. It's a picture of the resurrection. The resurrection the very event that we celebrate today is the proof of Christ's acceptable sacrifice for sin. Romans 1.4 says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Do you know God was not obligated to raise Jesus from the dead? Had there been any wrong in his life? Had there been any sin in his life? he would have remained dead. God didn't have to raise Jesus from the dead. But if Jesus had remained in the tomb, it would have meant that he wasn't a perfect sacrifice. His death did not provide forgiveness uh, for our sins. His death would mean nothing in regards to reconciliation to the Father. But the fact that there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem for all to see you know, proves God raised Jesus from the dead. It proves that Jesus' sacrifice for our sin was acceptable in the sight of God. It's proof that we can be reconciled to the Father, that we can come into a right relationship with the Father and have our sins forgiven as we place our faith in Him. Right? The empty tomb testifies. It's a witness to, to us that the Father has forgiven our sins as we place our faith in Jesus, right? Our sins are completely, perfectly, and forever forgiven. I mean, that's such great news. I mean, I can't hardly keep it in, tell you the truth, you know? We serve a risen Savior. This is one of my favorite songs. We serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he's living whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just to tie him, I need him. He's always near. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and he talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. If I had a voice, I would sing it. <laughs> you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart, right? That's a reason for rejoicing this, this morning. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who 
according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Christ is alive. He's risen. He's risen indeed. You know what? Now, go and tell everyone that we serve a risen Savior, that sins are, are forgiven as people place their faith in Christ. Right? If you're not a believer here today, none of this applies to you, just so you're straight. You have no reason for rejoicing for eternity. Yeah, sure, there are little reasons now. Maybe you got a new car, you got a, a raise at your job. You know, you can rejoice. But you know what? The Bible says this. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. What you have to look forward to if you're not a believer, Hebrews 10, 27 says, is a certain fearful expectation of judgment, a fiery indignation which devour the adversaries. If a person fails to receive the free gift of salvation through putting their faith in Jesus Christ, that person will stand before God and will have to give an account for their sins. You know, my question is always, why not just receive the gift of eternal life today and place your faith in Christ? Why not pray to Jesus and, and confess to him your need for a savior? Why not ask him to cleanse you today? You have nothing to lose in heaven to gain. Today can be a new beginning if you'll turn from your sin and turn towards God. And you too can just rejoice in the fact that we serve a risen Savior. You know what? 2,000 years plus or minus, and there's still a tomb in Jerusalem that you can go to and see. You can walk in it. You can see there's nobody there. And you know what? It's the, the proof of the Bible. It's the proof of acceptable sacrifice. It's the proof that our sins are forgiven. And as we place our faith in Jesus, it's the proof that one day he'll come again for us to receive him to himself, receive us to himself. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you for your word. I, Lord, my heart is bursting, really. I, I know it doesn't seem like it from the outside, but my heart is bursting. Lord, with just the joy of knowing that one day, probably very soon, we're going to see your face. One day we have the opportunity to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, because our sins are forgiven because of your sacrifice. Lord, I just thank you so much for your goodness, for your grace, Lord. And as we continue to worship you, Lord, we just pray that you'd be glorified and magnified. In your name we pray, amen.